Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Out of the gates, ready to go. OutKick 360 is back. Monday edition is here. Plenty to hit over the next three hours across the OutKick network and live from 6th and Peabody. With Beha Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. The crew all here. We have former Texans head coach David Culley, who was in Houston for last season. He's in studio with us coming up in 20 minutes. A lot to discuss with him. Uh, he's in town for a golf tournament. The Avs hoist the cup. Yankees and Braves on full display all weekend. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Good afternoon. It was uh, an eventful sports weekend uh, for the you know middle to late June with everything going on. So I had a lot of fun watching baseball over the weekend. Had fun watching the Stanley Cup final last night and uh, coming off what was not the greatest NBA draft broadcast that I've ever witnessed. It was a nice weekend. I did not have a lot of fun watching sports this weekend because Saturday marked the end of Simon's career as a under 12, 12 and under uh baseball player so now that's the last of the small fields for him he 13 is where you jump to to the big field he played on the big field as a jv player at school but just uh two miserable losses one a close game five nothing lead lose seven six in extras then the second just a game that got out of control and i fellas maybe chad used to put me on the couch i am having a lot of trouble coming to terms with this we had the season ending party at my house Yesterday, a lot of fun. Kids went over to a nearby field, played a huge wiffle ball game. I've got this game I need you guys to play sometimes called Cub. It's a, it comes from Sweden. It's a great hand-eye coordination game. Your dad really? would be dominant at it. It's a loads nice. of fun. Guys got into it. One guy ordered it between games to, to get it set at home. We had a great time drinking, eating, all of that. But I still wake up this morning. First thought in my head is about this damn game. Is it the game that you... We got blown out in or the close loss? The close loss thinking about more, more than the other but both just eating at me. You, and I got You sound go. like me prepping for a possible loss in the championship game of the softball yeah, well, league where I was saying that, that was the one. Well, actually, it was the semifinal where I said if we lose in this round for a second straight year after dominating the regular season, it's going to haunt me uh, for a while, way longer than it should haunt me. So I understand the feeling. We had our, did you, our did best you know pitcher, going in, Paul, that you were going to be this uh, remorseful slash sad about the end of 12 under baseball? You expected to win. Well, yeah, I expected to be playing on Sunday at least. But I am very sentimental about the end of things, you know. And you know the team will be different and all of that. It's a great group of kids. But also, you know, it was um, – we, fi- we finished seventh in, in pool play, right? Went 2-0. and But when we go 2-0, and usually we give up the most runs. And so we end up the last of the 2-0 and teams. So we were seventh. So we're the last seed in the top bracket. Now, if we had finished eighth, we'd probably win the middle bracket. 
you know, so is it bad that I would have rather finished eighth and won the middle bracket than been in the top bracket? You'd rather bracket be NIT champion where we wouldn't than have, first round exit? Well, we weren't, gonna, we weren't going to win the top bracket. There were some real big-time teams in the top bracket. That's, but, why you, that's why I would not be able to wait to get to the bigger field. But the team that won that. the whole thing, the top bracket, is the team we lost 7-6 to in extras in the first game that we should have beat. We were up 5 nothing. And we threw our big guy, our power hitter, who when he's throwing great, when he's throwing strikes, is dominant. And he was throwing strikes, and we pulled him after three innings because we're up 5 nothing. Coach felt a little too comfortable and felt like, I can use this guy again later. I love the coach, but he didn't have a great day. And, and um, going to a softer thrower, then they were like, oh, thank God the, the fastball is out. Now, is this the end of the coach and like the actual no, team, no, no. or this, like you just move everything up to the big field? Well, he'll have tryouts, so you've got well, to make it yeah. again. Does he yeah. go up with to 13 yeah. under? Yeah. So okay, he follows so the same. Start. That's good. So yeah. his son is on this team. No, his son, he has no son. This yeah. is his job. But so <clears throat> that's crazy. So he doesn't just stay in the 12U program? He'll no, we don't have a program. We're one team, which okay. is, the, and, I think, he's a paid of. to coach the team. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, that's, now, if you, that's re- nice. if you really wanted to form just domination, you could have him stay and form a new, you know, 12, 12 year or under team, right? And you could still be the Admirals yeah, but he'd or whatever. be starting from I mean, zero. Is this coaching, we kind of started is, from zero. Is this coaching error enough to keep him down at 12 no, under? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you have a He's feeder a terrific system. Coach. I'm kidding. He's a terrific coach. And move um, up to 13 under. How, how is Simon taking the loss? Uh, he he was really pissed, but he right gets now. over it better than I do. Like he's over. They played wiffle ball. You know, now that's the, great party the biggest the thing on his mind in the party. I, I would say if um, was there like if you this was the last tournament, no matter what, right? There yeah, wasn't a win in advance to the next week or anything. No, no. At some point, you got to stop I, playing. And have yeah, the I, mean, rest I, of your I would say that if Simon's over it, you should now be over it too. Yeah, I would understand if it's like we win these two games or hold a five nothing lead, and we're going to Cooperstown for the national tournament no, no. or to a state tournament somewhere else. I can understand harboring some resentment or some issues with that game. But if Simon's over it, you should be over part it. Of, part of the problem, too, that makes it hard for me is he's grown into a really good defensive shortstop. He's not a great hitter by any means. He's got a lot of, long way to go. But he's grown into a very good defensive shortstop. We don't have another guy that can play a good shortstop. And so his pitching is limited because when he comes into pitch, uh, we have a really big defensive downgrade at shortstop. So he pitched the last two innings of the game I'm talking about, and one of the reasons we lost in extras is because the replacement shortstop made a big error. But so he had to coach go is reluctant. Coach is reluctant to pitch him because the defense goes down, and he really wants to pitch. So and I really want to see him pitch. All these kids now are playing like for local middle school teams on your team on your travel well, ball team. Not all sixth graders get to play middle school ball. The ones that do did. Simon did. Couple other guys. See, did. it's so different from when I played uh, travel ball, tournament team ball, because we all played in a league in Mount Juliet Little League. So we were all drafted to different teams the Cardinals, no, the Blue Jays, the A's, team. the Rangers, the Braves. But everyone on the tournament team was probably a first or second round pick. So every when you say there was a hole at shortstop, that was impossible with our team because everyone played shortstop for right. their league. It's team. a team full of shortstop. Because they would take the best, you know, athletes. And you would play either shortstop or pitcher or first base. The problem was getting kids that had never played the outfield. Right, right fielder. To, is to learn how to play the outfield. You know, or you would pick one catcher that was the best catcher in the league because that kid played catcher the whole time. But every single team, a player on our team could pitch. 
if needed, because we all pitch for our, our league team. Every player could play short. Every player could probably play second or third. In the infield, it was getting the other position. So that surprises me that you don't have other secondary options that can step in and play shortstop. We will next year. That's good. So, Chad, how did Sunday school go for you? Oh, you yeah. taught Sunday school. Yeah. What was the lesson? It was good. I was uh, placed, I I was placed in charge. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. You mentioned eye for eye. It was about um, Jesus healing the blind. Right with the mud and the, the spit clay, and yeah. the clay, yeah, and then uh, the the pools that were washed in it. So my table, I was placed in charge of the boys' table. It's very evenly split. The girls sit at one table. They became men. The, the boys unruly. The, the boys are with us. <laughs> How old? There are two boys that are brothers that are twins that I think are so accustomed with rough play in their house and like you know pushing each other down and fighting that you have to separate them pretty quickly. And I've, I've handled this Sunday school before where you got to put one on one table, the other, because it How gets, it gets unruly. If not, I mean, these are, I think second grades, the it's probably kindergarten through second grade is the age range. Uh, but we had no big incidents. There was one kid I kind of respected because <laughs> no he paid no attention to the lesson, but they have this summer challenge pack. That's got like word searches and all the stuff they do for Sunday school. And he just did his word search the whole time. And it reminded me of myself in elementary school or junior high doing my homework during school. So I didn't have any homework at night. So, you know, everybody else is playing these little baby games and he's just sitting there pounding (laughs) out the word search, making sure that's done. I I respected that. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, there was, again, no big incidents. We did a game where you had to blindfold your partner and you had to lead them around the room. And you deduct a, deducted a point if they hit anything. Oh. Is how we started. So I think it would have been fun. better. I think it would have been better if you put a twist on this game, blindfolded both the leader and the lead, and called it the blind leading the blind. Well, I, that would have been a fun game. So my issue, and I'm going to have a problem with this. I'm sure at some point coaching also. Um, I will grab a kid and physically move them somewhere, and I, I have to almost stop myself because I'm I'm so accustomed to it. With like nieces and ne- every little yeah. kid I've ever been around, it's always been fine in my family to like, hey, you know, not in an angry way, Grab but like, no, you elbow. need to go over here, like yeah. pick them up and move them. And I, I caught myself doing that with the twins two different times where they kept throwing something. Like one kid took his belt off, tied it around his brother on his foot, and was trying to like drag him to trip him. To and the I had blind? to like grab the leg, <laughs> to trip the blind. I had to cr- grab his leg, yank the you know the belt, and then hand it back to the kid. And then I'm like, hey, you need to go over here now. You need to go over here. And he's trying to do something, and he's not going to move until I said, nope, right here. So I'll grab him by the arm and physically move him to the other table. And I'm thinking to myself, I probably need to watch this because someone's going to have some problem, and I'm going to have no defense other than, I mean, I moved your kid from one spot to the other. Sue me. To which they probably will sue me. (laughs) There were no incidents, but one kid took off his belt Tied yeah, it around another, another kid's foot yeah. and yanked him to the ground. I mean, but there was, was incident free. Yeah, some light Chinese water torture, <laughs> you yeah. know, at one point. During the, there was some, some waterboarding if going on. If this were anything but Sunday school, it would be compared to Squid Game. But it's, it's right, not. Right, it's, yeah, this was incident close free. Because it happened at the these church. Kids, they could have run over learn. to the baptismal font and, and been uh, cleansed of their sins if need be. <laughs> these, these kids have to learn early on. It is uh, fascinating to watch the attention span of a small kid. Like my, my daughter's pretty well, good at staying with it for about five minutes. 
But most of what them, age group is this? Like you start talking, yeah, he and said it's, kindergarten. And second the other thing grade. I noticed oh, okay. is when you read from the Bible, with like a kid at my table wanted to read Julian, this little boy, and uh, like Good my reader. daughter read, and then he read, but it's a really hard time getting to the end of the line and then finding their spot on the other side. So I was having to. Like on the page, go down and like point to the next word every time because he was jumping one or two lines in the Bible every time he would read. Simon's doing a little Bible reading these days, and I asked him like how he chooses. He said, "I just open it to a random page." Open it. Like, that's like the game on the globe. There was a globe in this Bible school classroom yesterday where you spin it. Remember, and then you just put your hand on it, and that's where you're going to live when you grow up. Do you guys ever play that game? Like I had a globe in my room. Like, all right, wherever it lands on, you won the that's where you got to move when you're, when you're older. So where were you living? We do that. That's just older. open up the Bible and start reading. That's when you develop your love of Cutter. I've always you loved Qatar. a globe. Yeah, um, like, cool. Even yesterday in the classroom, I find myself not watching my group and just studying the globe as I'm looking at it in the classroom. I love it. I like globes. So... Coming anyway. up. Exciting. David Cully is here with us at 6th and Peabody. Former Texans head coach joins us in studio to chat about all things 2021 Texans and his vast career coaching wide receivers across the National Football League. David Culley next on Outkick 360. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick Network, 6th and Peabody, our location. I hope our next guest writes a book because... Of all the, the, the stops that he has been at uh, for uh, a wide receivers coach, assistant head coach, uh, offensive coach, uh, across the NFL, some college as well, and a former head coach of the Houston Texans from last year, David Culley, in studio with us, fresh off the golf course and here at 6th and Peabody before catching a flight. Coach Culley, great to have you in studio. Hope you're doing well. Glad to be here. Always a good day when you're on a golf course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for sure. A uh, bit of a different feeling for you this offseason compared to last, right? It allows you to take a breather and, and go and play golf uh, well, this time of year. I wish I didn't have this breather, but yeah. uh, I got it uh, right after the season was over with. When I was released, I uh, went and got double knee replacements. The first thing I did, and once I got double knee replacement, I got it done early because I figured that I may not be coaching this upcoming year, so – I wanted to be able to play golf, so I said, I don't want to wait around to get it done. So I got it done early where I could come do what I'm doing right now is play golf. Are those scars a perfect match? They're, they're not a perfect match, <laughs> but they are both well right now. Yeah. Well, you're moving fine. <laughs> uh, so you are, you're not officially retired then? You're getting back into coaching? Uh, well, I'm not officially retired. I'm just taking a year off right now, and I'm just going to kind of go from there. Do, do you see yourself right now as wanting to get back in? And just waiting to see how things go? Or is it wanting to be retired and then I'll await the perfect offer to get back into coaching? In well, capacity? right now I want to hit the golf ball better. And <laughs> yeah. I didn't do that very well today. But uh, I, I'm just going to – you know, I did for 44 years. I had 16 years in college, 28 in the NFL. And uh, it's the first time that uh, this time of year that I wasn't coaching from – end of the season till uh, going through OTAs, going through the draft, going through the combine. 
first time in 28 years. And, uh, but the fact that I got both knees done, I did uh, seven-week rehab, uh, three days a week, they killed me. And uh, I didn't think about anything else but getting my knees right. Uh, so it, it's been good. I, do I miss it? Sure, I miss it. Uh, and people ask me all the time, all my buddies, I said, well, how do you feel about it right now? I said, right now, uh, my knees hurt, you know. And uh, I says, they're hurting right now, not because of the double knee replacement. They're hurting right now because I'm playing too much golf because I need to do something <laughs> to keep myself busy. When you were hired, when you interviewed, what did the Texans tell you about Deshaun Watson? Well, I really didn't talk much about Deshaun when I was hired. His, his situation really never came up uh, during the hiring process. Uh, once I got the job, then uh, obviously uh, we had a situation that uh, wasn't uh, ideal. Um, once I got the job and I had, uh, I had a conversation with the job with Deshaun after I got the job, I had one conversation with him for about 30 minutes. And all I'll say is, is after that 30 minute conversation I had with him is I did not feel like going into the next year that he'll be playing for the Texans. Next year being that current season. That current season, yes. Because uh, for, people may forget the timeline. He requested a trade before any of the other legal mess happened. And he requested the trade just before you were hired as the head coach, if I'm getting the timeline right. Yeah, you're right. And uh, basically the conversation I had with him was uh, uh, about coming back and what his situation would be. Uh, he simply just said that uh, I'm not going to play this year for the Texans. Um, I say, he says it has nothing to do with you or the new staff that was coming in here. Uh, I've made a decision. My team uh, has made a decision that they're not going to do it. And he says if, uh, if he needs to, uh, he'll sit. Did you get a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him or was his agent present while you I, were having this a, conversation? It was a one-on-one. -on -one. It wasn't a one-on-one person-to-person. It was a Zoom call. They wouldn't let me go one-on-one -on -one, person-to-person. Because they had already heard that I was pretty good one-on-one, person-to-person. <laughs> well, and look, they, they hired you, right? So obviously the Texans organization knew you're pretty good one-on-one -on -one, uh, with people. So when you look back at you know everything that transpired that led to you being a, a one-and-done coach, knowing everything that you know right now, do you still take the job? Or do I, you stay doing what you were doing before? Most definitely would take the job. Uh, when I took the job, I didn't, I didn't take the job thinking it was going to be a one-and-done. At the end of the season, I didn't think it was going to be a one and done. At, at no time, at, from the time uh, the season was over until the time I was released, did I ever feel like I wasn't going to be the head coach next year. Uh, yes, I'd have taken the job. I, I, I got asked questions all the time about why did you take it, why did you take it, why, with all the situation going on. I never felt like once I got in the job, into the situation, other than uh, the situation that was going down with Deshaun, uh, I, I, it, it really wasn't as bad as what everybody said it was. I mean, it really wasn't. Uh, the, the guys that were there, uh, the guys that were coming back, the guys that were going to play for us, uh, it was never an issue with Deshaun. The fact that uh, he wasn't going to play and that he was still around, uh, his presence was there, but it was not an issue, and it never was an issue with me. It never was an issue with the team. It was just that it was there. You know John McClain well. We have him on weekly on this show. That's consistent with what he told us all season. He believed that you were coming back. He acted like people were crazy to speculate that you weren't going to get a second year as head coach of the Houston Texans. When they come to you after the season, coach, and say, hey, this is over after one season, do they get specific as to why? 
they're letting you go, or is it just simple as, oh, we, we need to change the direction? Well, no, the, the, you just said uh, uh, a thing there that was said to me, that uh, I sat down with Nick, the general manager, and uh, he said that uh, I think I'm going to go in a different direction. And I says, fine. I says, we talked, and he says, well, what's, what's the reason? He said, philosophical differences. And from that point right there, uh, I says, that's fine. Then let me go talk to my staff, let them know what's going on, and then I'll go from there. What do you think is different about your philosophy with that of Nick Casario? Oh, well, I think uh, I don't. I think Nick and I were on the same page going into the year with everything that was going on. I think in the end, uh, when the season was over, they wanted me to do some things with my staff that I was not going to do. I didn't feel like I needed to do. And uh, in the end, um, two days later, after having that conversation, uh, I was fired. David Culley in studio with us. It was strange. It, we see guys have philosophical differences who don't want to change coaching staffs and move on. Uh, Mike Munchak here in Nashville comes to mind. What we don't see is from there the the coach on the that's currently employed and other coaches stay on board uh, because in in reality the GM goes out and gets another guy from the outside and brings him in and, and has the guy he wants. So. With, with Lovey, I know you're you're cool with Lovey and with yes. Pep Hamilton. Yes. Um, for them to stay and carry over, to me, I just the thirty thousand foot view. It was more than just David Culley wouldn't fire a certain coach. I don't know what it was behind the scenes, but it had to be more than just philosophical differences, didn't it? Uh, I'm not sure. I never had the conversation. That was the last only conversation I had. I never really didn't got into it. Uh, I've been in the business long enough to know that when. Uh, those guys make a decision. The decision is made. Uh, at that point, it didn't matter to me why. Uh, I, you know, they didn't, I, they didn't want me anymore to be there, and that was okay. Uh, did, did it feel like uh, – uh, I'm projecting myself here in this and thinking, you know, what happened after one year uh, with everything going on with that roster and everything you had to deal with? It almost seems like, Coach, they were uh, admitting fault or admitting a mistake by letting you go, by doing what they did in retaining – other coaches and continuing with that. Did you, did you let that seep in at all in terms of how you've looked at this now when you look back on your time in Houston? No, I have not. Uh, I tell you what, I, I've learned in this business that uh, you always look forward. Uh, you, you, you know that old saying, you guys know about the NFL, National Football League. It also means not for long. And you always, you always have that in the back of your mind. And when decisions are made uh, right or wrong, or whether you like it or you don't like it, uh, you live with those decisions. Uh, this wasn't the first time I've been fired. Uh, I've, been, I've been there before, you know. I've, I've been in that, uh, that uh, John Gruden deal, the FCA, the Fired Coaches Association, <laughs> you know. I've been there before, so I understand it. I'd love, to, if you can, to take us behind the scenes of the process of, of last offseason, the training camp, um, after the, the charges come out on, on Deshaun and knowing that he's, he didn't want to play for the organization to begin with, but he's on the roster. He's there so he does not get fined per day. And you have to figure out, as a part of the active roster, how you're going to use him or not use him on a daily basis. What were the conversations like behind the scenes? And did he show up to all the behind-the-scenes meetings as well, the team meetings, or was it just visually we saw what the cameras picked up he's walking out to training camp practice runs a couple of uh of scout drills and that was it um was was there more to it than that yeah he 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 was at every meeting during training camp uh he was at every practice during training camp uh there was only a certain amount of things be, that he was only going to do during practice 
because of the injury factor. Uh, but he was there. Uh, he was in every meeting. He wasn't a distraction. Uh, he was just like everybody else there. Uh, but knowing that he wasn't, I think there was always hope that maybe he might change his mind. And, you know, at, at, we got to the point where once the season got started, uh, he was still coming in the building, but he wasn't in our meetings anymore. Uh, there was no need for him to be in our meetings anymore because he was not going to be active. And uh, we knew that going in, and we, we handled it that way. We knew we was going to have one, one less guy on our active roster that wasn't going to play uh, during the year, and we, we, we understood that, and we dealt with it. And now the idea is he's going to be suspended in some capacity for the Browns as they go into training camp. Your understanding, last year in Houston, like if he changed his mind and said, Coach, I, I, I've changed my mind, I want to play, the NFL would have allowed that? Like he could have played that week? Yes, there was, there was no reason for him not to be able to play other than he didn't want to play. How involved in football was Jack Easterby, and how comfortable were you with his role? Very comfortable with Jack. Uh, Jack basically was not involved in the football part of it, per se. He was involved in more so the administrative uh, travel, uh, our training room, our, our weight room, uh, our player development. But as far as the actual football, Jack was never involved in that. And also, Jack was very positive. Jack was a... Jack was a very good ally of mine when I was down there. I enjoyed working with Jack. What do you think of Brian Flores' lawsuit? And what do you think of the two guys who have joined, joined it? Well, I, you know, I, I really have no comment on that other than the fact that I was asked to join it. Uh, I did not do it at that time. I didn't feel like it was something I needed to do. I backed Brian 100%. Um, uh, obviously, he has his reasons for things. We never had, I had a conversation with him, but uh, we didn't go any further than that. Basically, it's now in the lawyer's hands and uh, – I've kind of left it at that. You support him? I do support him. I, su- I support him from the standpoint of I, understand, I don't know all the exact reasons why he's doing what he's doing with the teams that uh, he has filed the lawsuit with, but I, I understand where he's going with the lawsuit. You mentioned those 44 years in coaching, the 44th being as your first shot as a head coach in the league. Just Brian Flores aside, personally, what has been your experience with wanting to be a head coach in the NFL or in college football. How difficult has that path been? When did you decide in your career, Coach, that, hey, I've done enough now where I can go and do this and be a head coach? How long did it take you from that point to land this opportunity? I felt like uh, when we left Philadelphia with Andy Reid and went to Kansas City, that at that point I felt like I was ready. And uh, I knew at some point um, if – if it came along, I was ready. I had conversations with Andy, and he felt like I was ready. I, I, was, I was on a staff that had guys that became head coaches. And uh, that I basically uh, kind of – they played for me before. Uh, they got into business with me. Uh, they went on and became head coaches, done very well. Uh, and I just knew that, that if that opportunity ever came up, I'd be ready for it. And I'll say this. When it did come up last year, I loved every minute of being the head coach of the Houston Texans. Uh, people asked about the, the, doing the things that we're doing here with you all now, the interviews every week, the TV deal, all those kind of things. Loved every minute of it. Looked forward to going to doing that. And uh, it, it was everything I thought it would be. And I, I, I always felt like that this was exactly where I needed to be, where I wanted to be. And uh, right now, the big thing that I miss about it, I miss being a head coach. I miss being that. I, I missed that whole deal when I, when I was there. As the head coach, did you miss the day-to-day coaching aspect of uh, a position? I mean, that, your history at wide receiver is well-known. 
uh, and the, to get your hands on a specific position and actually work the guys during practice instead of from time to time observing or do, doing the, the, the things that head coaches are forced to do more than they are just coaching on a daily basis? I was, I was to the point in my career where I was ready to coach coaches and not players okay. anymore. And, and that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I allowed those guys to do. Uh, when I became head coach, I was a head coach. I wasn't the head coach of the offense or the defense. I was a head coach of the football team. I allowed my coordinators to do their jobs, their offense coordinator, defense coordinator, special teams coach to do their job. They knew what I wanted. They knew how I wanted things done. We had conversations and talks all the time in coaches' meetings about this is how I want things to go. And, you know, you, I, you don't have to do it my way, but this is what I want done. And uh, that's what I've always looked forward to, and that's what I loved about it. Practice every day, interaction with the players. The, I remember the first day I went on the field as a head coach during the OTAs, I go out on the football field, we, have, we do our stretching, then we come up and we break and we go. And I'm sitting there saying, where do I go? I mean, you know, everybody's going in all directions. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, where do I go? Being an offensive football coach my whole career, the first thing I did, I went right to the defense. And I did that because I didn't want those guys on offense or the guys on defense thinking, oh, here's an offensive coach. He's spending all his time over there. I went right with Lovey to the defense. They were hitting a sled. And, and just, just to let you know, is I was getting ready to hit that sled, which would have been a mistake you know, when they were doing it, just to show them that I'm all in with you all. And then finally, Lovey came up to me and says, Coach, I don't know if you really want to do that right now. So I didn't. <laughs> so, you know, Andy Reid, uh, Bill Parcells, uh, the list is long of guys that are legendary that you've crossed paths with, you've worked with over the course of, of your football career. When you get the head coaching job, what was the advice that they gave you about managing coaches? You said you wanted to coach coaches – and not necessarily players at that point. You wanted that opportunity. What was the biggest piece of advice they gave you, or was it simply you watching and learning from them that was the advice you needed? Well, watching and learning was good, but I, uh, the two things, you mentioned two guys there, Andy Reid. The one thing I learned from Andy Reid was consistency. Uh, he's he's it, not only as a head football coach, but as a human being. Uh, the thing about Coach Parcells is I actually, after I got the job, uh, probably – before OTA started, I actually went to Saratoga Springs to visit Coach Parcells. And we sat down for a whole day and had a conversation. And the thing that he said to me was, do it your way and be yourself and keep coaching them. And that was advice. And with Andy Reid, it was like consistency. And then I mentioned another guy that was very influential in me, two guys really, John Harbaugh and Ozzie Newsom when I was in Baltimore. Uh, you know, I'll say this and – no disrespect to any of the organizations I've been with, but it was the best from top to bottom, the best place I've worked since I've been in the league. No disrespect to any place I've ever worked, simply because of the way they do the business. And with John Harbaugh, of course, I had coached against Jim as a player. I knew his dad. And just the advice they gave me was to be yourself. You know, be yourself and do it your way. So they let you do what you were hired to do. They let me do what I was hired to do. Did the Rooney Rule help you, do you think, and what do you think of it overall? Uh, well, obviously the Rooney Rule hasn't worked like it should work or was intended to work. Uh, I don't think that uh, the Rooney Rule had anything to do with me being hired at that time. Uh, it was the only interview I had in my career as a head coach. And that interview came not because of they were looking – I had to, had to interview a minority coach. They already interviewed four. So uh, – I think they're doing some things right now with the Rooney Rule that may help. But here's the thing I've always felt about the Rooney Rule. The, the, the Rooney Rule 
basically goes, needs to go to the top, to the ownership. Not the general managers, not the, it's, it's the ownership. In the end, those are the guys that in the end make decisions on yes or no, on who the general manager wants to hire, who they don't want to hire. And it's their mindset and their attitude about how they see the football team and how they see the guy coming in that's being interviewed for the coach. It's, it's, it's them. It's them. And, and I think uh, they just got to see the big picture. I think the league is doing something now uh, by bringing in guys. Uh, they have some kind of uh, uh, coaching thing that they're doing now, and they're bringing in so many guys. And they're coming in, and they're, 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 coming in and they're talking to ownership, not the general managers, you know, uh, not the people in the administration. They're talking to the, to the, to the ownership. To get, a, to get a feel for what, you're, what you are and what you're not about. Here's one thing about coaching and hiring coaches, and I always felt like this way. I very rarely would ever want to hire somebody I didn't know or somebody that I know didn't know them. And I, I know that's how they feel. You know, if they don't have a feel for you and they don't really feel comfortable with you, you know, there's, as, as a head coach or as a, as a coach uh, working with somebody, if you don't feel comfortable with them and if you don't know them, the one big thing I always said you wanted to have on your staff is you want to have trust. But you wanted guys to trust. Weren't you and the other four minorities that interviewed with the Texans dealing to a degree with Cal McNair, or was it all Casario? No, it was Cal and, and Nick. I actually interviewed with Nick twice, and then I interviewed with Nick and uh, Cal. Cal, uh, Miss McNair, and his wife. You mentioned the Ravens were the best organization or your favorite organization you've been a part of and been around. Why? Well, what was different about how they ran things in Baltimore that made you made them your favorite? Well, other places had that. I had that in Philly. I had it in Buffalo. I had it in, in Kansas City, the places I've been. Pittsburgh, which is, is another, another team way back when that I was with. It's the culture. I mean, the culture. There's a trust that you saw coaches have, you saw players have, you saw the city that team had in the organization, starting with the ownership and then trickling on down to the general manager. At that time, Ozzie Newsom. Uh, and then with John Harbaugh being the head coach, they did things, as you would say, the right way. There was a straightforward way about doing things. There was a culture there that was established that, that, uh, that I loved. So the Texans are now named in this lawsuit uh, 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 that just as of today with the news. Um, you mentioned culture in Baltimore. Was there anything different or vastly different about your experience with the Houston Texans from a culture standpoint as opposed to the rest of the league? No, nothing different. I had to establish the culture that we wanted to establish there. Obviously, I wouldn't have been the head coach there if things were okay. You know, if things needed to change. And basically, I felt like that uh, that football team did everything that our coaching staff asked them to do. They were everything we wanted them to be. And I go back and I look at it. I look back over the season and I sit here and I look and I see how they played, how they finished, and those kinds of things. And as a coach, all you want to do is know that they're going to go out and give you their best all the time, do the things that you want done. Uh, and I felt like they did that for me. Now, were there some guys on that football team that you, you didn't really reach? Yeah, I had guys on there. But I also got rid of those guys, you know. And, but the point was – that it was established. I felt like it was established. I think it's established right there right now. And I think Lovey will do a great job of continuing what, what we started there because he was there with me, understanding exactly what we wanted done. David Culley in studio with us, former Texans head coach. One of those guys I, uh, you got rid of was Zach Cunningham. The minute you released him, did you know 
he's likely he could end up very easily in the division based on relationships he has? I didn't know if he'd end up in the division. I he's going to end up on a football team real quickly because he's a heck of a football player. Uh, and he's a good person also. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, he had a relationship with Mike here um, with the Titans, and uh, Mike knew him very well, uh, actually coached him. And, uh, you know, he was a heck of, that, that's part of it. But the point was I start talking about culture. And, you know, basically uh, the, the reason that I made the decision to release Zach was that Zach wasn't doing the things in our culture that we wanted to done. Was he a heck of a football player and did we miss him? Of course we did. But the big picture was that wasn't going to help us move forward. And, you know, obviously he's, he came here, did a nice job with them, and he's a heck of a football player. He's one of the best linebackers in, this, in the league. And, uh, you know, I was happy for him. What can Davis Mills be as the starting quarterback for the Texans in the NFL? He can be a playoff caliber quarterback in this league. I felt good coming into the next year knowing that I had Davis Mills coming back. Uh, he came in uh, when he did. Obviously, he had to play a lot sooner than we wanted him to play uh, because Tyrod got hurt. He had a little tough going there for those first six or seven ball games, and then Tyrod came back, and uh, Tyrod wasn't the same, so I made the decision to go with Davis at the end of the year. Excuse me, and he did a heck of a job. He's, I, I will say this about him now. I, looking back at the draft class last year, looking at the draft class coming this year, this is how I feel about Davis Mills. If Davis Mills was coming out of the draft this year, he'd be the number one quarterback picked. Do you think you've got a lot of background with wide receivers? We saw three big wide receivers in, in Hill and Adams and Brown move uh, to giant contracts in new places. You see that as a trend, or are there so many good wide receivers coming out of college that we're going to see teams willing to move on after three or four good years of a wide receiver because they think they're replaceable with guys coming in from college and having immediate impact? Well, I think a lot of that depends on the philosophy of your football team. Uh, you know, if your football team is throwing the ball all the time and, and you, you, know, you got those guys, you, you keep them happy by doing that. And then when you got special guys, and you just mentioned three guys right there, those guys are – are special players, you know, really good players. Uh, I know the guy here, A.J. Brown. I loved A.J. coming out. I uh, think he's a heck of a football player. Uh, but, again, when you look at the big picture, you know, and those guys are to earn the right to be paid what they're getting ready to get paid and the contracts that they got. But here's the thing is, is that how many times do those guys touch that ball, you know? And so when you are, when you are deciding the makeup of your entire football team and you've got to put the kind of money that these guys command and that they deserve, uh, are you willing to do that and give up some other things? And some teams aren't, aren't, aren't willing to do that at that position. What do you think of Cleveland giving Deshaun the contract that they gave him structured the way they did? If he gets suspended now this year, he might lose the 16, 17 games if they suspend him for a season, but they structured it where his base salary is only a million plus. And so what he loses money-wise is next to nothing in the framework of, of the large contract. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what the details of his contract was. I just know this. I know why they gave him the contract. I mean, he's a heck of a player. Uh, and uh, he's – I know when I was coming in after the interview for that job, I, knew, I was th coming in to interview a job where the guy's a top five quarterback in this league. And, uh, you know, he, that, there's, there's, he's, a special, he's a special player. And uh, obviously, they saw the same thing and was willing to take that risk with him. And they're looking at it long term, not short term. How close was that deal to getting done last year with Miami? I don't know how close it was, but I, I, I do know 
we had a conversation. I had a conversation with Nick and uh, the night before the trade deadline, and it was 50-50. And then the next day, it was done. It wasn't done, you know, and, and whatever. Ha- I don't know what happened, but it didn't get done. Uh, put in perspective for us, because you, you've had a, a, the, the view that we would not have. Can you describe, maybe there's a behind-the-scenes story, a, a non-game day story of Lamar Jackson and the type of leader he is in Baltimore? Well, i tell you what. I know this. Those players on that football team will go through a wall for that guy. Uh, he comes to work every day. Uh, I mean, he's a, he's a tremendous human being. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, uh, keep – trying to say he can't do this he can't do that uh I've never been around in my 28 years in this league anybody more special at that position the only guy I've been around that was close during his prime was Michael Vick and I've had conversations with Michael Lamar is another level I mean completely another level and you can win a championship with that guy and uh, he is all about winning he is not about anything else he is all about winning and that franchise, as long as he's the quarterback, is going to have a chance to complete for a Super Bowl. You coaching this time next year? I'm not sure. I know this. Uh, I'll have to start hitting the golf ball a lot better than I am right now <laughs> because that will put me back into coaching with, uh, if I don't start hitting it better. If I start hitting it better, we'll see. But NFL? NFL. I'll only coach in the NFL. Okay. NFL only. Coach David Culley has been our guest in the studio. This has been a real treat for us. We appreciate you coming in. I appreciate you asking me. Absolutely. Thanks Thanks so much. You're welcome. We will uh, recap what uh, Coach Culley uh, had to say. Plus, we'll get into some other headlines of the day. That's all straight ahead on Outkick 360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Our thanks to former Texans head coach David Culley, who just joined us in studio here at 6th and Peabody. If you missed a portion of that, Podcast is always available wherever you download your audio. Just search out Outkick 360. Monday edition rolls on. Um, I love his honesty, and you can tell that he feels like he should still be the head coach of the Houston Texans based on the way last year went down and the way he felt it was going into the offseason. And to get that call from Casario and to be told they have philosophical differences because he wouldn't make a coaching change, to me, that's strange, given the fact that they just turned around and hired Lovey Smith and kept Pep Hamilton on uh, as in charge of the offense, the and, and, and he's running the quarterbacks. Yeah, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense at all. I mean, if they had fired him and made some dramatic change to Josh McDaniels right. or a Casario person, that was what we all thought was coming, right? We thought McDaniels or we thought Gerard Mayo. Yes. Um, if, if it had been a move like that, you say, well, he was a sacrificial lamb that uh, went into a bad situation and, and got screwed. He went into a bad situation and got screwed and, uh, and got replaced by one of his deputies. It's bizarre. Well, it's tough it, just meeting David Coley for the first time and having that long conversation to imagine him having many enemies around the league. And John McClain talked about that a lot, how well-liked he is around the league and easy to get along with. We certainly saw that in that interview. I mean, bottom line is, David Coley got screwed by the Texans. Put in a terrible situation. I mean, look, we can yes. sit here and talk about money. He's going to be paid handsomely. 
you know, to walk away after a year, and he got very rich off the Houston Texans. But he's not in this for the money. I mean, 44 years, and his 44th year was his first as a head coach. And he thought 15, 20 years before he was ready to be a head coach, sacrificial lamb or not, the guy got hosed. Absolutely. He got a raw deal. He got one season in an in, intolerable situation in Houston for anyone to have any success. He had very little success, as was expected, had no off-field issues that we're aware of, and he got fired after one year. And Hutton, like you said, they promote guys who were <laughs> with him in the organization. Well, it makes it no been sense. Their plan. No, and here's the other thing. We've forgotten about this because the Deshaun Watson story has moved to Cleveland. But Houston is a, a, a sick organization. I mean, uh, Davis Mills maybe is a, is a nice mid-tier quarterback. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not totally against the idea that you give the guy a shot. But this organization doesn't have much talent. It doesn't have much of a plan. It's still got Easterby, who's one of the great mysteries of, of the league and a meddler and whatever, by all accounts, except for David Culley, who's playing nice. That, that organization's got a lot of issues, and Lovey Smith ain't going to fix it. Yeah, and they have three first-round picks coming from Cleveland as well that will help well, supplement some things. Yeah, right. But in the meantime, it's a wait and see. And can Lovey Smith and Pep Hamilton have success given the way the roster's currently built. They've got another coach next year. Outkick 360 rolls on.